invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis 11. The next seed. Today we begin our step back into Genesis. We spent almost exactly a year thinking through the essential details and the lessons of Genesis 1 through the beginning of Genesis 11, tracing uh, history from the creation of all things in six literal days to the dividing of nations found in Genesis 11. And in those messages, we not only considered history, but we learned about the establishment of God's design in a multitude of areas of human existence. We learned about God's design in marriage. We uh, talked about what it means that humanity are sinners. We thought about who Satan is and what his goals are upon the earth. We uh, talked about why the world is filled with evil, why bad things happen to good people. We talked about God's design in civil government, about God's plan in redemption, about the nature of man's predisposition toward evil and rebellion, about God's plan through the family and and the specific family who would bring about the Messiah, the, the, the one who would bring redemption, among many other important and foundational truths. To this end, Genesis 1 through 11 is indeed one of the most foundational and most consequential passages of Scripture in the whole biblical record, which is why I spent a year walking through most of it. We're actually back here today. I did stop a little bit short because I wanted to get through um, uh, talking about Babylon and Nimrod, and then we had Palm Sunday and we had um, the Resurrection Sunday. So uh, we have been gone now for um, two months from Genesis, and today we are going to continue in that narrative. And it is very much a continuation, not only of the historical narrative, but of the themes that have been established regarding redemption in Genesis 1 through the beginning of chapter 11. And I'd like to take just a moment and remember what we have traced in this theme to this point. Many themes are begun in Genesis 1 through 11, and we can trace several of them throughout the Word of God. But the theme that we are specifically speaking of is the theme of that seed, that one who would uh, culminate in Jesus Christ. It was back in Genesis chapter 3, if you recall, that Eve was deceived and Adam rebelled, and so the crown of God's creation fell to sin. And when Adam sinned, the Bible says the whole human race was plunged into sinfulness as well, so that every child born of the seed of Adam would be born dead in their trespasses and sins. So that humanity is, as Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, by nature the children of wrath, born with a sin nature, born spiritually separated from God. Now, there is a great debate in theological circles as to exactly what the representative fall of Adam looked like. We didn't really get into this when we were there in Genesis, and that's because the debate among orthodox views, while important to a degree, uh, in this particular angle, this particular debate is what I would call a derivative debate. And what I mean by that is that you and I, where you and I fall on this issue of exactly how it is that Adam became a representative or how it is that that the humanity fell in Adam, this is derived from where we fall on other foundational truths. The way that we interpret other aspects of salvation, other aspects of sin, will determine this derived truth of how we see or what perspective by which we understand Adam's 
fall. So to spend our time on that issue specifically um, is not necessarily profitable, especially for a Sunday morning. It might be profitable for uh, a discussion over coffee. It might be profitable um, for a Bible study, but it's not necessarily profitable on a Sunday morning. Far better to establish those foundational truths and then allow the derived truths naturally then to flow from those foundational truths. But for the sake of thoroughness, I do want to give you a little bit of an introduction to um, the, the, those the, the two primary views that we would, we would have within our circles as it relates to the debate over what happened when Adam fell to sin. And generally speaking, if you were to look in a systematic theology or something of that sort as it relates to these views, it would fall under two different views, the seminal view of headship and the federal view of headship. Now, the seminal view of headship teaches that when Adam sinned, Because we were in Adam when Adam sinned, we actually partook in Adam's sin with him. This is reminiscent of Paul's argument. You say, well, why would we derive that? That we would derive that from a a very similar idea that Paul gives in Hebrews chapter 7 as it relates to the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek. He argues in Hebrews chapter 7, and for those of you that... um, that, that, that weren't there for that series. I did preach through Hebrews on Sunday night not too long ago, and, and you're welcome to go back and listen to those messages if, if you've ever been curious about Hebrews. Um, it was quite, a, quite an enjoyable series uh, to go through. Uh, but he argues in Hebrews chapter 7 that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than that of Aaron, and that Jesus is uh, after the order of the Melchizedekian priesthood, not the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. And the reason why that is important is because Paul is attempting to argue for the reality that the law has been fulfilled in and is thus superseded by grace and Christ and Christ's finished work on the cross. And one of his proofs that he gives in Hebrews chapter 7 related to this is from Genesis chapter 14, where Abram pays tithes to Melchizedek. So within the scope of this, uh, Abram had just come back from uh, retrieving his nephew Lot when he had been taken by Chedorlaomer and a confederation of kings who came out against Sodom and Gomorrah and took them captive. And then he paid tithes to Melchizedek, uh, who was the priest of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. And he argues that since Abram was the great-grandfather of Levi, Levi was thus in Abram, So when Abram gave his tithes to Melchizedek, thus submitting himself to the priesthood of Melchizedek, Levi was by proxy, by by virtue of, of, of the seminal headship of Abram, Levi was also paying tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, the Levitical priesthood was actually submitting itself to the Melchizedekian priesthood because Abram did, and so Abram's posterity did by proxy as well, by seminal headship. So depending on your perspective, this would either prove or picture the fact that the Levitical priesthood, and so the law, which the Levitical priesthood represented, was not the highest relationship with God, but rather there was a higher relationship that was rooted in or represented by Melchizedek in that day. And they then take that same idea and they say in the same way, when Adam sinned, because every single person who was born of a man was born in Adam, was in Adam at that time, therefore we all sinned after Adam's sin 
And so we are all guilty of that same sin when we're born because we were in Adam when he committed that sin. And that's the seminal viewpoint. The federal viewpoint sees things a little bit differently. This sees Adam as not the seminal head of the human race, but the federal head of the human race. Now, covenant theologians, of which we are not, would credit what they call the covenant of works as the reason for this representation, that Adam entered into a covenant of works by which he was the representative of the human race. And the word federal does, in fact, mean or pertain to an agreement between parties and its It's called federal because uh, it is derived from covenant theology. However, though the name implies a covenant, that doesn't necessarily mean the viewpoint demands one. In this view, it sees Adam as a representative of the human race, not necessarily that we are federally uh, or seminally in him, although we could still say that based upon Hebrews 7, but as it relates to Adam's sin, that as our representative, when Adam sinned, He was the representative of the human race. And so as the representative of the human race, he chose a path for us. That when he chose the path of rebellion, he chose a path not just for himself, but for all men to follow. So that as Romans chapter 5 verse 14 says, death reigns even over those that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So Romans 5 seems to say that there were those that did not sin after Adam's transgression, which would kind of throw a monkey wrench in the seminal viewpoint as it relates to that direct idea. And instead, we are, uh, th- there are those who did not sin after the similitude of Adam's transgression and yet still carried a sin nature by virtue of Adam being a representative of the human race. Though you and I did not eat of the fruit, Yet we inherited Adam's guilt because he was the representative. And we can understand this. Uh, There are plenty of times where the the actions of a leader do not just touch that leader, right? They touch the people that are under them. As a matter of fact, it's almost always the case that the actions and decisions of a leader will naturally affect the people that are underneath them. So if Adam is is, uh, designated by God as the, the head of the human race, then his decisions will naturally filter down to those who are underneath him in much the same way that a child might suffer the consequences for the choices of a parent, which we see all the time. Or a nation might suffer the consequences for the choices of uh, their their, their national leaders. Now, regardless of, whether, of where we might fall in the scope of those two views, the seminal view of the headship, uh, the, the federal view of headship, they point us to a similar conclusion. And that's why I said it's a derivative truth. And as long as we don't become too absolutist, we will come to a general similar conclusion. And that conclusion is stated somewhat unambiguously in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Regardless of exactly how it is that sin hit us, it did, in fact, hit us. It fell on us. So Adam sins, and because he sins, however we conclude that imputation happens, it leads us to the conclusion that every man who is born of a human father is a sinner. No one is born good. No one is born partly good. Death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, as Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because you have sinned, because I have sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have been separated from God 
God. And so I have a sin nature imputed upon me, passed down from father to child, from generation to generation, establishing a spiritual separation between each human and God. And this spiritual reality is evidenced in my life. I I live in this spiritual reality, and there's two ways I know I live in this spiritual reality. First is because of the physical process of bodily breakdown that leads unto this thing called death. Physical death, right? Physical death shows me that I am under this curse, but also the personal sins that I commit. The personal sins that you and I commit are not the problem. They are symptoms of the problem. The problem is a sin nature that is rooted in my heart so that whether or not I find uh, creative or disciplined ways to mask the symptoms of my own sin nature, if I haven't dealt with the problem, if I haven't actually come to Christ to, to, to cleanse me of that, 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 that sin, to, to bring about forgiveness, well, then I'm just masking symptoms. Now, after Adam sinned, God curses the serpent and the man and the woman. We spoke in Genesis 3 about the biblical basis for our understanding that the serpent was, in fact, Satan, though there are plenty plenty of things about that that God has not seen fit to tell us. To that end, we find that God, when God curses the serpent, uh, we actually see kind of a twofold curse. The first curse we find upon the actual physical serpent itself, presumably for its role in allowing Satan to control its body or something to that effect. We don't exactly know. Again, that's some of the mystery. But one way or another, the the actual serpent is cursed and he's cursed to uh, slither on his belly and to eat the dust of the ground for the rest of his days. But then we also find a, a, a layer below that where God speaks to the serpent about a Uh, another curse, a second curse, which we have interpreted to be upon Satan, the one who possessed the serpent. And it is this curse that is is of interest to us to review. It is this curse that becomes the the foundation for a thematic um, line of thinking that we have traced from generation to generation within Genesis 1 through 11. In that verse, God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here we find what we consider to be the first promise of Jesus Christ, the first, the first gospel, that there was coming a day when the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, and in this case of Satan. And Satan would bruise his heel. The damage to the heel would represent a temporary wounding, whereas the damage to the head would represent a mortal blow. And on that day, Adam and Eve understood this to mean that one of their offspring would be risen up to repair the damage that was done when Adam sinned and brought humanity into that place of sinfulness. And on that day, the Bible also established a major Bible theme a Bible theme which is essential to the purpose of the Old Testament narrative, to trace this seed. Who are we tracing throughout the Old Testament as we go from Adam to first Abel, then Abel is killed, then to Seth, then to Noah, then as we'll see, to Abram, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Judah, then David. What are we tracing there? We're tracing a seed. We're tracing a lineage 
And the whole point of that entire lineage, the whole point of tracing that throughout the Old Testament, many reasons, we'll talk about some of those tonight in Amos as well, but one of those great reasons is so that when Jesus comes, there has been a track record that shows that he is of that lineage that we are looking for, for Messiah. And we say he is the son of David. And so we trace this lineage. And this is what Genesis has done. It will continue to do. It will trace that seed first through Abel, the deceits of the flesh and of the devil compelling Cain to rise up and to kill his brother. This also becomes the first record of Satan attempting to thwart God's kingdom program. We'll probably talk about that when we get to Genesis 15 or so, a little bit more. Following the death of Abel, Adam and Eve have Seth, and notice what Eve says on the day that she has Seth in Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So we see here that she identified the fact that Abel was the chosen seed. And then Abel was killed by Cain, and now Seth becomes the other, another seed, right? The next seed in the, line of Seth, uh, in the line of Seth would thus be the continuation of that seed. And so we find that the Bible begins to trace two lines. The line of the wicked, those overcome by Satan, those who have their portion in this life. And we trace them for about eight generations from the line of Cain to Lamech, technically to his sons. But Lamech is the focal point of that. These men being men who have chosen their portion in this life, those who have chosen the promises of Satan above the promises of God. And then we trace the line first of Abel, which is cut off by Cain, and then of Seth. And we trace the line of Seth through Enoch and unto Noah. Those who had chosen the promises of God and of the life to come above the promises of Satan. This is a thing that we call faith. Those who had faith. Now, following the flood, the narrative continues its purpose of tracing the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And in Genesis chapter 9, the text gave us particular attention to one of those sons of Ham, a man named Canaan. And we find that Canaan was a profane man, showing that even though God had destroyed the wickedness of this world through the flood, that does not mean that faithlessness had been destroyed from off the earth. The wickedness of those people had been destroyed from off the earth, and yet there would still be a faithless generation that would arise. Because within the heart of every man is the potential to believe these lies of Satan. God's great flood destroyed the faithless of that day. But God did not yet destroy the works of the devil. The, the, the head of the serpent had not yet been bruised. And so the lies of the devil would, would still be alive and well. And Canaan becomes the representative of that. And this, made, this was made abundantly clear in the days of Babel, where we find that somewhere between 100 and about 300, 350 years after the flood, mankind had already determined in his heart to unite himself in an effort to challenge the authority of God. So right before our, our two-month break, we talked about God confusing the languages, confounding the languages at Babel, initiating a scattering of family groups throughout the known world, creating the nations, the cultures, the languages, the families that we find around the world today. 
Now, in that table of nations in Genesis chapter 10, we find little to indicate the fullness of the next seed whom God would choose. We do see that the line of Canaan would be cursed and that God blesses Shem and Japheth Japheth through their father, Noah. But we didn't necessarily see one of those three lines bubble up to the top, at least within the scope of the Genesis 10 narrative. However, after the confusion of languages in Genesis 11, we do find a particular line that is traced. We find that seed, that one who, that the seed that God has chosen to continue the lineage of faith all the way to Messiah, we find that seed identified. And that's what we're going to study today. We're going to finish Genesis chapter 11 and see who this next seed is. And in doing so as well, my hope is to give us some perspective on what comes next as we step into the life of Abraham in the coming weeks. So in Genesis chapter 11, if you're there, beginning in verse 10, the Bible says this. These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad 500 years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived five and 30 years and begat Salah. And Arphaxad lived after he begat Salah 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber. And Salah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. And Eber lived four and 30 years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg 430 years and begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived 230 years and begat Sarag. And Reu lived after he begat Sarag 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Sarag lived 30 years and begat Nahor. And Sarag lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived nine and 20 years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah and 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begat Lot. So the text here takes us all the way back to Shem. Once again, in Genesis 10, we trace the lines of Shem, Ham, and Japheth as it related to the creation of the nations throughout the world, right? So in Genesis 10, the objective of Genesis 10 is to, to trace the scattering, is to trace where all of these nations went and where they ended up. But now the Bible comes back to Shem in Genesis 11, indicating to us that Noah's th- of Noah's three sons, Shem is the son through whom the narrative would continue, through whom the seed would continue to be traced, the seed of the woman that would bruise the head of the serpent, the one who would undo the sin that was done in Adam. And as with all other genealogies to this point, we have the same formula, Right? Shem had Arphaxad two years after the flood. He lived another 500 years having sons and daughters, and then he died. So as we walk through this formula, we find here Arphaxad had Salah 35 years after the flood. That means that Salah was born 37 years after the flood. On this chart here, you'll see the number of years between each birth, and then flood plus however many years, and that's the number of years since the flood that each one of these men was born. So Salah had Eber at 30 years old. That's 67 years after the flood. Salah then lived another 430 years, having sons and daughters, and then he died. Eber 
had Peleg at 34 years old. That's 101 years after the flood. Genesis tells us the earth was divided in Peleg's days. Genesis 10 told us that. We believe that to be to the, the dividing of the earth in his days to mean the confusion of languages. I justified why I believed that when I was in uh, um, chapters 10 and 11 previously, um, that we, we find the same word divided being spoken of as it relates to the dividing of the nations as it is here speaking of the days of Peleg. And so that's what I believe it means, that the earth was divided in Peleg's days. Um, and that would give us a timetable for um, Babel. Peleg, as you can see there, was 101 years after the flood he was born, and he lived until about 340 years after the flood. And so we, we find that to be that generalized timeline there for, I mean, not the flood, excuse me. Yeah, the generalized timeline for Babel would be in those years, we would believe, uh, because of that. His name, um, Peleg, meaning earthquake, being indicative of a great dividing taking place on the earth. So Eber would live another 430 years, have sons and daughters, and then he, of course, would die. Peleg has Reu at 30 years old, and then uh, and that's 131 years after the flood, and then he lives another 209 years and dies. Now, at this point, we see a shift, and I would like to highlight this shift at the end of um, Peleg's Life. And what I'm going to do in order to highlight this shift is I'm going to show you a, a clip from a timeline. It's going to be, and I've done this once before, it's going to be a little bit busy. It's um, online. It's, it's called AmazingBibleTimeline.com. It's called The Amazing Bible Timeline. It is a very well-visualized timeline as it relates to some of these things. may not be accurate, of course, about everything. They generally use a, a, a timetable that I find um, quite good and I'm quite comfortable with it. And of course, it is used by permission. Um, so for the sake of ease, I'm going to pull a portion of this and hopefully it's somewhat readable. We have Shem on this side. This thick line here would be indicative of the days of the flood. And then we find the timeline of their lives. And on the bottom here, I clipped it at Abraham. And that is the whole um, the whole scope of his life there as well. So we see a timeline for the 10 generations from Shem, uh, beginning of Shem's life to the end of Abraham's life. And uh, this is the lineage. Notice the major drop in lifespan at Peleg. Within the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And at that time, when the earth was divided, we see a dramatic drop in lifespan. So the first to die in this entire 10-generation lineage is actually Peleg. He died at the age of 239, 340 years after the flood. And notice at this point, even his great-great-grandfather Shem is still very much alive. But Peleg dies. Now it gets even more interesting. One year after Peleg dies, Abraham's grandfather, Nahor, would die. This was obviously a premature death. It doesn't say, the, the Bible doesn't tell us why he dies or how he dies, but Nahor dies a very premature death. The text will even tell us that in a little bit. He lived 148 years. He dies 341 years after the flood. Things get a little more normal after that, in a sense. Next to die, so we have Peleg and then Nahor dies, and he dies an a, a early death. But then after that, we find Peleg's son dies. His son, Reu, lives to be 239 years old. He dies uh, 30 years after his father, 370 years after the flood. After this comes his son, who dies. 
230 years old, uh, 23 years after his father, uh, 393 years after the flood. So all of that uh, um, is is pretty normal. And then, of course, Terah dies as well. And uh, that is the son of of, uh, Sarag. Uh, excuse me, uh, of Nahor. Nahor already died. That's the grandson of Sarag. He dies next. Nahor's son dies. He lives to be 204 years old. He dies at 427 years after the flood. None of that's too unusual with the notable death of Nahor, which was early. But take note of this. By the time of Terah's death here, when Abraham's father dies, Shem Arphaxad, Selah, and Eber are all still alive. That's interesting. When Terah died, the previous five generations of Abraham's fathers were dead, but the four generations before that were still alive. In fact, at the time of Abraham's death, 175 years of age, at the time of Abraham's death, Shem you know, like the guy who went through the flood, Shem had only been dead for 25 years by the time Abraham died. So Abraham was 150 years old when Shem died. Isaac was 50 years old when Shem died. So Isaac could have known his 10th generation grandfather, the one who went through the flood itself. And Shem's great-grandson, Eber, outlived Abraham by four years. Jacob was born 10 years after Shem's death. Jacob was 19 years old when Eber dies. It was interesting as I was studying this, the immediate thing that came to mind when I read that, that Jacob was 19 years old when Eber dies, is remember when he's standing before Pharaoh in the latter years of his life, and he says, few and evil have been my days and I have not lived up to the days of my father's. Well, yeah, <laughs> right? Um, that gives a little bit of context to, to, to his perspective on that when we find out that he was 19 years old when Shem's great-grandson uh, died um, and that, that Eber actually outlived Jacob's grandfather, Abram. And so that, that's there for perspective. As we think through this, I'm not going to speculate. We, we, we talk about some of the reasons why the... Uh, Uh, perhaps biological, perhaps um, um, uh, um, geological reasons why lifespans may have begun to to go down after the flood. And and, and we can speculate all of those things. But it's in the days of Peleg that something major happened. Um, Perhaps it was a part of that dividing, uh, the scattering. Maybe it had something to do with Babel. But something brought about a dramatic shift in lifespans in that time. Uh, We continue then in verses 28 to 32 where the Bible says this. And Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and the father of Itzcah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, who presumably he would have uh, taken into his care, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came into Haran and dwelt there. 
and the days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. We already talked about that. We finished tracing Genesis 11 through tracing Terah and his son, Abram, along with Abram's wife, Sarah, and nephew, Lot, whose father, Haran, had died. And the whole family, Terah, uh, his two sons that are still alive, and their families all left Ur of the Chaldees, which was an area near Babylon, and they were planning to go to the land of Canaan. But the Bible says they never quite made it to the land of Canaan. Instead, they made it as far as Haran, and the Bible says they stopped and dwelled there. Uh, I have a map here. This is quite insufficient. I have a better one for next week. I probably should have just slapped that on here the other day. But uh, Ur of the Chaldees would have been down here near the Persian Gulf, Babylon being somewhere around here, and they would have followed the Euphrates River up. And this is natural. Next week, uh, I'll, I'll show you this a little bit more. But we have an area here called the Fertile Crescent. And it's called the Fertile Crescent because there are rivers that are lining that particular area of the country where there would still be water, where there would still be uh, animals, where there would still be things growing, uh, where they could eat, where they could water their animals. You do not go across the desert to get from uh, the Babylon area to the area of Canaan. You do that, especially with an entire family, and you don't make it. So they have to go around, and they get up to Haran, and at the point they hit Haran, the Bible says that they stopped. Now... Uh, as it relates to why they migrated, perhaps this is a part of the migration following Babel. Uh, they were down in that area. The Bible says that Babel could have happened. Uh, if, if, if Babel happened in the days of Peleg, uh, that would have been again from about 100 years after the flood to 340 years after the flood. If we're somewhere around 300 years after the flood, Abram is alive at that time. And so we are in a place where they could have migrated immediately after. It seems unlikely, though. It seems like it happened a little bit earlier. But this may have been a part of that migration following the confusion of languages. Either way, however, many groups had already begun to migrate. And now Terah decides that they are going to migrate to the land of Canaan. However, they don't quite make it, and instead they end up in Haran, which is a place in Syria. Now, eventually, of course, Abram will move past that, and there's potential reasons why they may have stopped there. We know that Terah is getting old, and he dies not too long after, so it's possible that his health would have stopped them, whatever it was. But we do know that that was the place that they settled, and, and, and to the extent that, as God acknowledges it later on in the text... Abram, at this point, is considered one of Haran, a Syrian. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 26, the Bible says this. God speaking to the nation of Israel, he says, It shall be when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance uh, and possessest it and dwellest therein, skipping to verse 5, thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became their nation great, mighty, and populous. The reason why within this invocation of of praise to the Lord, they say that my father was a Syrian ready to die was because they had come from that land of Haran, the area that they settled when they left Ur of the Chaldees. Now, as we wrap up our exposition, it's worth noting finally that Abraham and Terah's original objective here was to go to Canaan, but the family stopped in Haran. And this is where we leave the record of the seed of the woman for this week. Thus far, we've actually only traced it to Terah, although all of the writing is on the wall for Abraham to be that next one, and we'll see him uh, come up here in chapter 12. 
Now, I've given you heaps of information today. But what have we also seen today? We've seen a narrative with a purpose. We've traced a record of scripture from the beginning. I did a little bit of review because we're coming back in after two months off of Genesis. And we've traced a specific theme, that theme being the seed of the woman. What we're tracing throughout the Old Testament is the lineage and the legacy of faith through whom God would bring forth that child that would bruise the head of Satan. And like Seth and Enoch and Noah before him, Abram is going to become a very significant checkpoint in that legacy. And the reason why he is a part of that legacy is because he has faith. The lives of all these men were very different. And in their day, we find that their roles in society were different. Enoch was a prophet who the Bible says walked with God. Noah was a man commissioned to build the ark, to endure the judgment of God, to bring humanity to the other side. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord because he was a man of faith. Abram will have his own role to play, just as will his son Isaac and his son Jacob. But in our closing minutes, I want to highlight that one thing that they all had in common, that scarlet cord that connects all of these seeds that we have traced from generation to generation to generation. The reason why our tracing of this genealogy leads to this particular family, why that the, the, the genealogy traces Seth and not Cain, why it traces Shem and not Ham or Japheth, why it traces Abram and not Nahor, is because beyond the physical actions of these men and the promises that they would share with God, this line from Seth to Enoch to Noah to Shem to Terah to Abram is a line linked by a very specific attribute. And that attribute is faith. These men believed God. And God was pleased to use them because they were pleased and willing to be used. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, if we were to continue in Hebrews 11, which we will be doing quite a bit of over the next few weeks, because Hebrews 11 invokes Abram quite a bit in those early uh, verses, we would find that it's not only those of the line of Seth and of Noah and of Shem that carry that legacy of faith. That family the family that we trace all the way to Christ carried that legacy of faith. And so God used that physical lineage to bring about the Christ, the one who would bruise the head of Satan through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. But this legacy of faith is not reserved for that physical lineage, is it? This faith is the call of God to everyone. And as we trace this family of faith, which is what we're going to be doing, we're going to be tracing a physical lineage of a physical family. That family is not a family of perfect men. That family is not a family of, of men who have transcended common humanity as it relates to their actions, their attitudes, their disposition. As a matter of fact, we're going to be reading some things and be somewhat horrified by some of the things that they do. 
but there will be a common attribute among all of them. And that attribute is faith. We will be tracing flawed people, navigating life's circumstances, life's feelings, and life's relationships, not always doing the best job. But at the end of the day, the legacy before the Lord, the thing that made them usable, was not that they were flawless. It was that they were faithful. And that's what we'll be tracing. This faith compelled them away from self, away from sin, and toward the one who had promised. So that we read as we continue in Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they had come out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. We read here of the legacy of men and women whose minds and hearts were inclined toward the promises of God above and even at the expense of the promises of this life. We sang this morning, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. That idea of being led by God, that's faith. This decision within them that they would not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God, dictated to them the terms of their life upon this earth. They saw a heavenly promise, And their faith in the God that was behind that promise compelled them to structure their entire life with those rewards in mind. That's the contrast, right? Cain and his posterity, they sought their reward in the things of this life. But Seth and his posterity, they may have had the things of this life. We'll find out Abraham's actually a pretty wealthy guy. But that wasn't where his heart was. He sought for a greater promise, a different city, a city whose builder and maker is God. So they'd set aside the promises of this life for a better country, for a better city. But notice the end of verse 16. It's my favorite part, I think, of all of Hebrews 11. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. My spine just tingled when I read it. Contemplate the implications of that statement. The God of the universe, the God that we've studied who created all things, the God who holds creation in his hand, the God who is omniscient and omnipotent, omnipresent, the God who is all of these things, all power, given unto him who has need of nothing who knows our needs before we ask this God was not ashamed to be called their God this God was willing to have these people take ownership of him and he was willing to take ownership of them why? faith because faith pleases God And this is the legacy of the family of faith that you and I have the opportunity to share in. 
So that as we read these accounts of men and women, as we trace this seed from generation to generation, for most of us, their history, their physical history is not our physical history. Most of us do not trace our family heritage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the treasure and the joy of reading this history goes well beyond just that history, well beyond even the theology. And it rests in this simple truth that all who walk by faith in the word of God walk by the very same faith by which Seth walked, the very same faith by which Enoch walked, the very same faith by which Noah walked, the very same faith by which Abram walked. So that while the familial history is not necessarily our own, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior and entered into that family of faith that is the church, then you carry forth that legacy, that spiritual legacy is absolutely yours. And this echoes the words of what Paul would say in Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For most under the sound of my voice, you are of faith this morning. You are one who has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so you you have entered by grace through faith into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God by which uh, the chains of sin have been broken. You have been sealed until the day of redemption. And the question then is, are you walking by faith? Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7, I believe. When we compare the legacies of those who have their portion in this life and those who walk by faith, when we look at those people who walk by faith and we see all manner of types of people there, all manner of flaws, all manner of of interesting decisions, all manners of of victory, all manners of professions, all manners of opportunities that that were or were not laid before them, but the thing that they all had in common is they were faithful. Are you being faithful today? Jesus asked a question in his day. He was teaching his disciples about the end of the age. And he asked a question in Matthew 24, verse 45. He says, Who then is a faithful and a wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Then he would go on to say in verse 46, Blessed is that servant, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing. You have faith, Christian? That's good. You've received the gift of eternal life by grace through faith? That's essential. But when our Lord returns, and for many of us we believe it will be quite soon, will he find you faithful? Will he find you so doing? Is your life filled with the marks of faith? Or is your life filled with the marks of self? You're in the Spirit. You're living in the Spirit. But are you walking in the Spirit? You've been redeemed from the world that is around you, but do you serve yourself or do you serve the living God? You've been redeemed from the world that is around you, but do you live in the flesh or in the Spirit? You've been redeemed from the world around you. Do you have your portion in this life or the life that is to come? Are you being faithful? The call is to live up to the legacy that we carry. The legacy of Seth. The legacy of Enoch. The legacy of Noah. The legacy of Abram. The legacy that passed through Jesus Christ and he has passed to us by grace through faith. 
a legacy which is spoken of at the end of that Hebrews 11, what's often called the Hall of Faith, as it transitions into chapter 12. Remember what it says? Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have walked by faith and not by sight, those who sought a city whose builder and maker is God, those whom God was not ashamed to be called their God because they had faith, Compass about with such great a cloud of witnesses, let us do this thing, Christian. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is not just the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. He is not just the one who demands the faith. He has shown it. Because he went, he endured the cross, he despised the shame in faith that the Father would exalt him. And indeed, now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, proving to us that all who put their faith in God will find satisfaction in that faith. And so as we think through what was somewhat of an academic message today, yes, Pastor Wickler can pull this much out of a genealogy, right? But as we thought through that genealogy, we worked through all of the academics. Let us remember what we're doing here. We're tracing a family. We're not tracing a family that had some sort of special genetic predisposition by which God chose them to be genetically pure or something special. We're tracing a family who made a choice. A choice to believe God. We'll find in Genesis 15 that that's counted unto him, under Abram for righteousness. The same choice that we are here because we have made today. So are we being faithful? Setting aside those things that are inconsistent with our profession. Laying aside the weights. Laying aside the sin that easily besets us. Running this race with patience. In the power of that one who was the seed, Jesus Christ, who mortally wounded the head of Satan, who came to destroy the work of the devil, who now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, whoever lives to intercede, who's coming back for us, and when he does, as he asked, will he find his servants so doing? Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.